0: Thank you, Rodney. As the children are heading to Children's Church, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, which is where we will be. And today I have one prayer, two verses, and three points for you. I'd like to start with that one prayer as our children are dismissed. Would you bow with me? Father, I ask that your word would fall down on us like rain and that it would accomplish its purposes, that you would cause it to accomplish its purposes in each of our hearts, each of our lives, ministering to us like you do, as, to each of us as individuals and to, to our church as a whole. Father, I thank you for it and I trust in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Our two verses are Romans chapter 8. Verses 12 and 13. And if you would, if you're able, please stand as we read these two verses together. It's just an expression of honor for God's word. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We're so grateful that we have God's Word to study this morning. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. So the first of my three points is this, and each of them I think is pretty simple. The first point is this. Christians do not have to obey their flesh. Christians don't have to obey their flesh. Christians don't have to obey their flesh. It says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So, the first question that's probably popping into your mind is what is the flesh? Other than a particularly gross sounding word to say over and over again on Sunday morning. What is the flesh? Well, think of it this way there's basically three main villains in the story of humanity Satan, the world, and the flesh. Satan, the world, and the flesh. Satan is a real being who really does try to grip his disgusting fingers on us and pull us away from God. His primary tool to do so is deception. He's the deceiver. He deceives through temptation. He deceives through accusation. And he wants nothing more than to separate you and me from God in life. So that's Satan, villain number one. Number two is the world. Think of the world as the system of humanity apart from God. Satan's over the world until Christ returns. So the world is the system that we live in that works against our being united with God. The world is the reason why you can't check out at the grocery store without being bombarded with temptations on the magazine covers, either to covet or to lust or whatever. The world is the system that we live in apart from God. So that's Satan, the world. The flesh is that part of you and me that responds to Satan and the world. It's that part of us individually that believes Satan, that listens to him, that bites into that bait that he hangs out there in temptation. It's that part of us that loves the things of this world. So if the world is the the system apart from God, the flesh is that part of you, your human nature apart from God. And everybody's born into the flesh. That's what he's talking about with the flesh. That part of you that will sin. That part of you that that is still in this world. Everybody with me? I'll take that as a yes. We're with you. Paul gives a couple of lists that that, um, lay out more exactly what he means. And I'll read those to you real quick so we know what we're talking about. The first is in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. I'll just start at uh, verse 19. These are the works of the flesh. This is what it looks like. The works, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He has another list that's similar in Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 5. It says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of, the ra- on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in knowledge after the image of its creator. So those just give you specifics on what the flesh looks like. I want you to be able to visualize it. I want you to connect this with your specific fleshly nature. So back to Romans 8. Point number one is, Christians, we don't have to obey our flesh. He uses the word debtors. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Why does he use that? Why are we not debtors anymore? Do you remember back in Romans 6, one of my favorite passages in the Bible? Romans 6 six and 7 explains that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin Another way of saying the flesh might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. You're not enslaved. You're not in debt to the flesh anymore because you've died with Christ if you're a Christian. How many of you have debt? How many of you have some form of debt? Mortgage, auto, personal loan. Yeah, everybody. Everybody has debt. And if any of you did not raise your hand, will you help us, the rest of us? please, to get out of debt? Death is the one ultimate trump card. Some of our debt is going to chase us until we die. But what are they going to do to us then? They can't get it then, can they? It's not our problem anymore after that, right? Death is the ultimate debt trump card. And in Christ, we have died to the flesh. So it's in that sense that we're free. Have any of you ever listened to the Dave Ramsey show? he's a Christian finance guy and and he'll have people call up and if they're debt free by following his steps, he lets them yell the top of their lungs, I'm debt free. Well, Christians, you're debt free to your flesh. It has no authority over you and you have no obligation to it anymore. You may not feel that this is true, but it is true. And just knowing that is half the battle. G.I. Joe was right. Half the battle is just knowing that you don't owe your flesh anything. Now, on the flip side of this, it suggests that those who are outside of Christ, they still are in debt to their flesh. They are obligated to their flesh. They can do nothing else. They're enslaved to it. But Christians, it's, that's not so for you. Now, this means that lapsing into fleshly living is by choice, not by force. It means that we're not victims of our sin. Christians, we're not victims of our flesh. We're victors in Christ Jesus. So when we lapse into fleshly living, it's not by force. Because flesh does not have that authority over us anymore. It's by choice. So what is your sin? What is your fleshly nature that you're prone to? Those lists that I've read, which ones of those stuck out to you? That's what I want you to picture as we talk about this. We'll take the example of sexual immorality because that was at the top of both of Paul's lists. So that must have been up there when he thought about the flesh, sexual immorality or impurity. Dumb sexual cravings rule the lives of many, many people. And you can tell that looking around. And many of you experience that. Chemically speaking, sexual temptation is very powerful, how it operates in your brain. But even as Satan, the tempter, tempts you in a world in which there are 4.2 million uh, pornographic websites to fulfill the demand of 68 million daily searches for pornography and that kind of world that we live in, where you can't drive down the road, where you can't walk through the grocery store, where you can't turn on the TV without the onslaught of the world and the tempter. In that world, Christian, you are under no obligation to fulfill your fleshly cravings. We're not victims of our flesh, we're victors in Christ Jesus. But we don't always live that way, do we? That leads to point number two. Point one was Christians don't have to obey their flesh. Point two, when Christians obey the flesh, they die. That's what he says in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. It's so frank and plain. If you live by the promptings and cravings of your flesh, you will die. Death. If you let your flesh be your master, you will die. If you let flesh drive your life, it's going to total it. So you're wondering, well, how can I know if I'm living according to the flesh? I mean, we're all sinners. We're all going to struggle with sin. But how do I know if I'm living according to the flesh? Well, here's a good indicator. If the steps you take through each day are guided by the same forces that guide non-Christians you're probably living in the flesh. If the steps you take through each day are guided by the exact same forces and motivations that guide and motivate non-Christians, you're probably living according to the flesh. If it's self-promotion, self-protection, self-satisfaction that guides you and motivates you, you're probably living according to the flesh. And this is serious because the result of that is death. And I think he has in view final, eternal death, but I think also just walking daily death. Because remember, he's talking to Christians here. He said brothers at first. So he's talking to Christians, and he's just worked really, really hard to make sure the Christians know that it's not up to your ability to, to do right and to act good for salvation. It's all about what Jesus did on our behalf. So I think mainly he's talking about daily walking death, is what I'll call it. I think it has the the connotation of separation. If you look back at how that original word is used, separation from God, separation from true life. Have you ever done something stupid and hurt the feelings of a close friend or relative? Something you regret, you said something you shouldn't have said, and because of that, it, it separated you from this person that you, you really actually love for a period of time until you're able to work it back out. That's sort of what happens as we live in the flesh as Christians. We separate ourselves from the God that loves us so much. We, we do it. And we feel that deathliness every day. So the same principle that, that damns us apart from Christ, when we're in Christ, it still holds true in day-to-day living. It doesn't damn us eternally, but we experience that deathliness in day-to-day living. So, the big point here, and I wrote this out so I could say it clearly. Every step that we take according to the flesh is a step away from God in true life. Every step that we take according to the flesh is a step away from God in true life. So, another example, Paul talks about evil desires and covetousness, and envy, and jealousy as works of the flesh? Any of you wrestle with any of those things? So Satan, the tempter, wants to use every time you turn on the TV to HGTV, every time you go over to your your better-off-financially friend's house, he uses that to tempt you to covetousness. Every uh, magazine you look at, Satan would tempt your flesh to abandon trust and gratitude and contentment for covetousness, jealousy, and envy. And every step you take in that direction is a step away from God. You're separated from God as your trust in Him starts to disintegrate. Your trust in His plan for your life just disintegrates, and you want what the other person has. You're separated from God when your gratitude for His blessing just evaporates. And instead, you just feel the need for more? I had a pastor a while back explain to me, uh, I was struggling with something particular, and I felt like my prayers just weren't making sense. They weren't being answered. And He was asking about my life, and I was I was walking according to the flesh. And he said, well, when you're doing that, I don't know if he got this from the Bible, but I think it makes sense. When you're walking according to the flesh and living according to the flesh, it's like... It's like trying to talk on your cell phone up at Blong Rock Campground. When you're so far removed from any cell phone towers, you're, you're cut off. The communication gets garbled and cut off. And there is a real sense in which we separate ourselves from God. But there's good news. There's something we can do. There is something we can do. You don't have to obey your flesh. When you do obey your flesh, you die. But the good news is when Christians slay their flesh, they live. They live. That's how he finishes up these two verses. For if we live according to the flesh, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what does it mean to put to death the deeds of the body? It just means to kill them, to execute them. It's the doctrine of mortification. Anybody ever heard of that? We talked about sanctification and justification last week. This is another big Ification, word, mortification. It's putting to death the flesh. It's, it's active. It's not passive. It's not letting flesh die of natural causes. It's attack. It's a call to violence, to bloodshed, to brutality. It's a death match, and it's, it's us versus our flesh. And one of one of them's going to live, and one of them is going to die can't continue together. There's, there's no tolerance for it. There's no truce. It'll kill you or you will kill it. That's what John Owen said. He's a Puritan. Puritans are really serious about this part of Christianity, killing your sins. And this John Owen guy said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Killing. Killing. It's killing you. Your sin is killing you. Or you're killing your sin. Which camp are you in right now? Who has the upper hand right now? I'm reading a book about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's a German theologian. He lived around the same time that Hitler came to power. You may not have heard of Bonhoeffer, but I'm sure you've heard of Hitler. It blows my mind how Hitler could have come to power. He's like a maniac. I don't, I'm not good. I don't know a lot of history, but I'm learning some reading this book. How could this man have come to power and gotten so many people in the in the German military and the leadership to do his bidding and to slaughter people, innocent people in in horrible, gruesome ways. How is it possible? What's interesting about this story is Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the few people who saw Hitler for what he really was. And he as a Christian decided that the only course of action wasn't nonviolent protests but to take part in the conspiracy, the plot to kill Hitler. As a Christian, can you imagine coming to that conclusion? We've got to conspire to kill someone. He looked at it like, you know, if you were standing on the street and there was a drunk driver careening through the street, just taking out pedestrians, women, women, children, old ladies. He said you would do whatever you could to stop that, even if it included killing that driver. If he's just going to keep on plowing down children. That's how he looked at it. Hitler had to die. That's sort of the mindset shift that needs to happen for us in our battle against the flesh. We've got to come to that Bonhoeffer realization of what it is. It's not just unpleasant. It's killing us and our families. And it must die. So how? How? Well, he says, did you see it in there? But if by the what? Spirit. That's right. Thank you, you two. Really appreciate that. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the task is yours and mine, but the power is God's. The task is ours, but the power is God's. Remember the rowboat versus sailboat analogy from last week? We have this sea that we have to get across, but God's providing the wind. We have supernatural power in this battle. Miraculous, Holy Spirit-sized power to kill our flesh. He phrases it in verse 4, live according to the Spirit versus living according to the What am I saying? Live according to the Spirit rather than according to the flesh. It's not enough just to try to stop living according to the flesh. You start living according to the Spirit. In verse 14, he'll say, be led by the Spirit rather than being led by the flesh. It's not enough just to try to stop following your flesh. You've got to start following the Spirit. And I like how John Piper says this. It's the difference. Following the Spirit is not like following a pace car at Lowe's Motor Speedway. Race fans? just I'm raising my hand. I'm not even a race fan. Larry Baker. All right, Larry, this is, this is for you. It's not like following the pace car in a NASCAR race. It's like following a locomotive. You hook up to it and it pulls you by its power. That's how following the Holy Spirit works. You don't get behind it and try to keep up with it. You hook yourself to it and are pulled along by supernatural power. And it's amazing and it really is miraculous. So what is this power of the Holy Spirit to kill the flesh? How does this deadly weapon of the Spirit work in practical reality. I'm going to try to get real practical here. How does it work? What, what is the sharp edge of the Spirit that would kill the flesh? What is the sword of the Spirit? I heard faint mumblings of it. Yeah, the Word of God. In Ephesians 6, when Paul lays out the whole armor of God, the only offensive weapon in there is the sword of the Spirit. Which is the word of God? I had one of my college pastors. Every time we start our college Sunday school class, he'd have everybody hold up their Bibles and say "word," and I love that. This is our only offensive weapon, the sword of the spirit. Or look at it a different way: in that sail rowboat analogy, God's got His Holy Spirit. The winds are blowing. But the sail is made up of individual threads of Scripture that are sewn into our minds and our hearts and our lives. Without that, there's nothing to catch the wind. There's nothing to catch the power of the Spirit to push us along. So it may not be that the Holy Spirit's not blowing through your life. It may just be that we don't have a sail up to catch it. So you guys, you who are in here who are tangled up in... Just fleshly, sinful misery right now. You're caught up in things you can't stop. You're dealing with repercussions of sin that you you have done. In Christ, you have supernatural power to kill it. So we need to unsheath the sword, we need to stab it in the heart and turn it all around. We need to lop its head off. Is your Bible bloody from battle with the flesh? Because if it's not, you're probably living according to the flesh. Because the flesh is aggressive and it doesn't give up without a fight. So we'll take another example from Paul's list. He talks about anger and wrath and fits of anger. I wonder how many of you have anger problems. I know all of you parents of small children at least have flashes of anger problems. Not me, but you guys. Satan tempts our flesh with anger when our will is thwarted. That's basically what's going on with anger. When our will is thwarted, Satan tempts us to get angry. So how does the sword of the Spirit work? And in, in, let's just say that's your fleshly, you're living according to your flesh in terms of anger. How does the sword of the Spirit work? Well, there's kind of two ways. First, think of it like a dagger. I went to a camp one time, and they had given all the counselors little camouflage Bibles, little tiny ones, and they called them their daggers. They weren't like, It was just a New Testament, I think. So it wasn't like an all-out sword, but it was a dagger. There are specific scriptural truths that you can pack into your mind and into your heart and into your arsenal that you can use specifically to fight your fleshly cravings. So let's say it's anger. So a car cuts in front of you. He's an idiot. Reckless driving. Worst thing you've ever seen. Unbelievable. It's it's atrocious that anyone would ever drive like that. So that happens to you, and you're driving along, you've got someplace to be, and Satan tempts you. He whispers in your ear, get angry. Blast that idiot with wrath. Fret over this because you've been wronged. Well, remember Psalm 37.8 says, Refrain from anger. Forsake from wrath, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Has anything ever, anything good ever 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 come from your anger, your road rage? No, it only tends toward evil. You start driving like an idiot. Getting all up on somebody's bumper. You stop nudging your spouses. You do the same thing. When the world makes you think that Men, let's just say, when the world makes you think that real men have short fuses and don't let anybody walk over them. So anger is appropriate for masculinity. Remember Proverbs 16.32 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes the city. When your flesh thinks that getting mad is going to accomplish something of worth, remember James 1.20, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When something happens to you, something legitimately wrong is done to you, and your flesh is craving vengeance against a person, you want whoever hurts you to, to feel like, oh, it is a fearful thing to be caught up in the hands of this person that I've hurt. Remember Hebrews ten thirty through 31. It says, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. This is God talking. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Vengeance is God's. We have no no place taking vengeance. You can use these truths in the specific times when Satan and the world and your flesh are trying to kill you. And you need to use these truths. You're closest, Terry. Tap her on the shoulder. (laughs) But there's two different ways. There's that specific way, that specific fight. That's all right, Elizabeth. There's that specific fight, and then there's the more general sense in which being soaked in the Scripture just forms our whole basis of thinking. Remember what I said anger is, basically? Basically, it's us getting angry because our will has been thwarted. But generally, if you soak in Scripture long enough, you'll start to see it's not about our will at all. It's about God and His will. So the, the, the broader strokes of your worldview start to change. Anger is passion inflamed. Usually we get angry because we're passionate about ourselves and it's, it's not working out the way we want. Our passion is transferred over to God. And this deed of the body, anger, can be killed. It can be taken down. It really can. But take note, it's a sword. Have any of you ever killed a person with a sword? No, I didn't think you had. I wanted to, like, modernize this and make this feel more like something we would deal with. Not that I think any of you have probably ever killed anyone. But I don't know you that well. So I wanted to make it, like, no, it's more like a gun, but... It really is more like a sword. Because your flesh is very, very close to you. It is you. It's in you. Swords are for up-close, ugly combat. When you use a sword, you get bloody. And it gets messy. And it gets ugly. It's not like pushing a button that's going to drop an atomic bomb on some people you've never even seen before. So expect... Struggle. Expect squirming. Expect the writhing fight of death unwanted. Like a snake that you cut the head off of, just rolling around, anger in the dirt. But the bottom line reason that a Christian's flesh gets the best of him is because his Bible isn't bloodied from battle with it. Have you ever seen an old saint's Bible? Some of you, your parents, your grandparents... And you see their Bible, the one they've used for decades, and it's just all almost falling apart. And every page has notes and things underlined and highlighted. And uh, May we all have Bibles like that one day. Because a sword does you no good if it stays in the sheath, not a holster, sheath. Only if you're using it. So Christians, you do not have to obey your flesh. When you do obey your flesh, you die. But when you kill it, you will live. And this is our only hope. You individuals who are struggling with sin, in your family, you see it in your kids and your grandkids. This is your only hope. The supernatural power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. It's our only hope when when we get done watching our sitcom from 9.30 to 10, and then all of a sudden... The news comes on and we realize that we live in the most horrific place imaginable in this world. And we see all these gruesome, grotesque, violent things that people do to each other. What's the hope there? How are we going to change that? The police just try to manage it. The only thing that can change people and kill this flesh is the Spirit. You know, when I see these things, it just makes me all that much more urgent about what I'm doing here. Making disciples. I just tried to check my email a couple weeks ago, and there was a headline that showed dead bodies hanging from a bridge in Mexico where drug cartels had just cut people open to make a point because they were blogging against the drug trafficking. And I'm like, oh, it's just horrific. And it just makes your skin crawl, and you think, what what are we going to do? Well, we're going to do this, and we're going to get this out to as many people as we can. You parents and grandparents who are just sick with worry about your kids. You see them living according to their flesh and you see how it's killing them. What are you going to do? What can you do? Ground them? They're in their 20s, 30s. (laughs) The only hope is this, and it it, it sounds, it probably sounds like it's not going to work. Like I told Amy one time, she asked me some hard Bible question, and I, I, was, I didn't know the answer, so I gave her a couple verses. I said, take two verses and call me in the morning. Like it sounds ineffectual, doesn't it? <laughs> but it's not. This is the—I meant to read the Scripture early. and I'm going to read it now. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we have to give account. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any double edged sword, it's sharper than any other plan you could ever devise to try to get at the fleshly problems of yourself or your family or this world. It is our only hope. So may we, by the Spirit, kill the deeds of the body that are killing us. May our Bibles be bloody from battle with our flesh. May we stand tall as victors in Christ Jesus, because we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives as Christians. Thank you that we're not debtors to our flesh. Help us to live in the light of the fact that we have no obligation to our flesh. It has no authority over us. Lord, help us to kill it in our lives, in our family's life, in our church. Help us to get the gospel of Jesus Christ out to the world because it's our only hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.